This morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4. You can turn there in your Bibles or also in your, your bulletins. It's printed there for you. The, the Bible in front of you is, uh, is yours if you need it or want it. So go ahead and grab that. If you need a Bible, uh, please, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take it and use it. You may be aware that um, Europe is experiencing a record-breaking drought right now. And the heat and the lack of rain has started to expose all these things that have been buried under lakes or reservoirs or even just under, like, landscaping. So in Spain, there's a reservoir that, as it's dried up, has revealed what they call the Spanish Stonehenge. It's a circle of rocks that looks like Stonehenge in Spain, but it's usually buried under a lake. And we get to see it now. Or in England... You have these old country estates with these huge lawns that are just manicured to perfection. Well, as the grass has died, because they haven't been able to keep it alive, as the grass has died, if you were to take a drone over these lawns, you would actually see the bones of the old landscaping from literally hundreds of years ago. You can actually see the patterns in the grass and in the landscaping from way back when. My favorite thing, though, is that some, as rivers have dried up, one of the things that they've found is these rocks. And generations past, they would take these rocks, and in summers or whatever it was of extreme drought, and the rivers would get really low, they would carve in these rocks and put them in the river. And the rocks say things like, if the river gets this low, get ready for famine. Or Um, They call them the hunger stones. My favorite is one that was carved in 1616. And it said, if you see me, cry. Like, like shivers. Hard times are coming. Right? That's what what these stones say. Well, I, I, I bring that to your attention because in the same way, it can take, sometimes take hardship to reveal certain biblical truths that have gotten buried under the circumstances of life. Philippians chapter 4 is a passage like that. This is what Philippians chapter 4 says. You can be content regardless of your circumstances. You can be content regardless of your circumstances. And even though we may have lost or buried that truth into the pace of life or maybe the priorities or just even our cultural norms or expectations of what a good life looks like, it's true. And Christians throughout time have believed it's true and they've lived as if it was true. And this morning, we need to unearth that. And maybe we, if we can learn it before hard times come, we'll have it when they do come. You can be content regardless of your circumstances. But how? How do we do that? We're going to look at this passage under two points. That contentment transcends and contentment transforms. Contentment transcends and contentment transforms. Before we read the passage, I want to give you, we're kind of just parachuting right into the end of Philippians, so I do want to give you a little bit of background so you can know what's happening, kind of some context. First of all, Paul wrote this, this letter to the church of Philippi. It's called one of the prison epistles. The prison epistles were written while Paul was in prison. He's very likely under house arrest, maybe chained to a guard. He's probably dictating this letter. Um, he's writ- writing it while he's in prison. Secondly, we know that Paul planted the church at Philippi. And he loves the church at Philippi. He loves those people. He knows them intimately. He cares deeply for them. And finally, we know that the Philippians had sent Paul a financial gift, 
a monetary gift to support him in his imprisonment and in his ministry. They sent him some money, and it really, really encouraged him. It meant the world to him, and that's what comes out in our passage today. So we're going to turn there. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 10 through 13. Hear now the reading of God's Word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is God's good word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are buried in it, Lord, that we can study and learn. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us about contentment. Lord, satisfy us in you. Satisfy us in you so that we might know what it means to follow you and enjoy you and to love you and to be loved by you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. My parents live, I grew up in Greenville County, not in Greenville, Greenville, but Greenville County, the south part of the county. And so to get to my parents' house, it's a, it's, it's a pretty good drive. It takes a little while. And you kind of have to drive through the country down there, a little bit past Simpsonville, actually. And um, there's all this development going on down there. Tons of neighborhoods are cropping up, growing, growing all over the place down there. And there's this one... This, this, old, this country road that used, it used to be a country road, now it's got lots of neighborhoods, but there's this country road that you drive down, and there's this one apart new neighborhood that's gone in, and as you turn this corner on this road, there's the neighborhood to, well, this would be to y'all's right, and, and in front of the neighborhood, which is a, it's condos, right? It's not single-family homes, but these condos, there's a sign advertising the neighborhood, and the sign is this tan, and it has brown lettering on it, and it's right there, and, and it says, you really can have it all, okay? You really can have it all. Now, when we talk about contentment, we're talking about what that all is for you. Contentment completes this sentence, I will be okay if, I will be okay if blank. Whatever that blank is, that's, we're talking about contentment. And it's something that we all are pursuing one way or another. And anytime we fill in that blank intentionally or maybe subconsciously or it just feels this normal what we do as a culture, we're pursuing contentment. That's why contentment is so, so central to, to the decisions we make, to the way we lives our, live our lives. That, that question um, just profoundly shapes even the smallest decisions that we make. I will be okay if blank. That's the question of contentment. Now, those condos that you drive, that I drive past on the way to my parents' house, right? They're, they're not single-family homes. These are, they're condos. We know that those condos are not going to give us all that we ever dreamed of or all we ever desired. And in fact, we see that and we kind of roll our eyes like, oh, come on, that's so shallow. Like, that's going to do it. That's going to give it. You, I really can't have it all, and that all is that condo. But the reality is, is that everything that comes at us in all of our lives is saying the same thing. You really can have it all. And do you know what all is? Well, you know, maybe it's another vacation. 
You know, this, maybe the secret to getting joy and rest deep down into my heart is three more days in Charleston this fall. That's going to do it. Or, you know, maybe to the, how, will I, I, how will I know that I'm valuable? How will I know that I'm valuable? Well, you know, I just have to climb a few more ladders in this company, and then people will begin to look up to me and listen to me. And they will think that I'm valuable, and thus I'll know that I'm valuable. Or how about, you know, I, if I can just get this mid-century modern living room to state of perfection, then people will want to come see it and sit in it, and then they'll be my friends. And they'll love me, and I'll know that I'm worth having friends. You really can have it all. Is it working? Well, studies say absolutely not. We don't even have to think about a study, though, because this is one of those things where studies show things that we all already know. And we know it because you can just drive around Greenville and see how many storage facilities are in our city. I mean, they are eyesores, and yet we need them because we have more stuff than can fit in our houses. We have the biggest houses on earth, and they're not big enough for all the stuff that we're trying to fill our lives with. We do actually have it all. We're still not satisfied. And of course, the menu of possibilities that our culture gives us to fix the problem is so limited. Consume more, make more money, become more beautiful, buy a bigger house. We're not content. It doesn't satisfy us. And our culture really doesn't offer deeper answers. Well, although there are a few places of kind of drops of depth in the midst of a fairly shallow society, and those drops of of depth are found in places like The Princess Bride and Sweet Home Alabama and The Notebook. (laughs) The Princess Bride is about a beautiful girl who could be marrying the king, but doesn't want to. She wants to marry the peasant who, she, who she's in love with. Sweet Home Alabama, rising star in New York, fashion, fashion designer, she gives it all up. Why? To return to her roots and to marry the boy she loves in Alabama. And then, of course, the notebook. The notebook's got an added twist to it. You have this girl, who's, this rich girl who's given it up to marry the poor boy who she loves. But then you actually have at the end of their life, they're, they're elderly now, and the girl has dementia, and the boy sits with her and talks to her and tells her the story of their love, even though she doesn't know who he is. Why does he do that? Because he wants to be with her. He doesn't care about the circumstances he loves her. Why do we love those stories? We love those stories because we long for a relationship that's more important than circumstances. We long for a love that says, I don't care about the situation I'm in as long as I'm with you. We want to believe that there's such a thing as love that transcends circumstances, a love that can can make us content in lack or in abundance, in poverty or in plenty. And there is such a love. It's not just in re- cheesy rom-coms, right? It's this true, deep, heart-filled contentment. It is always attached to a love story, and that story is a real, there is a real story that's like that. These, these stories are, they are a little cheesy, and it's because they're incomplete. There's 
They're just reflections of a much bigger, much better love story. And that's the story of the gospel, that God made us to love him. We're made to be filled with this infinite love. And our first parents, they, Adam and Eve, they rejected that love, and human beings have been trying ever since to fill that hole in our hearts with the things and circumstances and experiences. But of course, those things have only left us more aware of the emptiness that is not filled inside of us. God, however, he was not content to leave us like that to leave us desperately grasping for satisfaction, but he loved us, not because we were beautiful or rich or successful or we had well-behaved children or, or because you know, he could, we could help him climb the social ladder or something. No, he loved us because he loved us. And he sent Jesus, Jesus himself, as our assurance of pardon said, that he was not content with his, his glory and the riches that he had in heaven. He came to become poor for us because he loved us. He died, he rose again, so that we could receive and experience that infinite, transcendent love that we were made for in him. The story of the Bible is a love story. The love of a bridegroom for his bride. The love of a father for his children. The love of a God for you and me, his people. And it's in that story where soul-satisfying contentment can be found. Look at some of the things that Paul says here in our passage. In verse, verse 12, he says, don't, don't some of these things sound, don't they, aren't they reminiscent of wedding vows? He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's, it sounds kind of like what we say when we get married, right? I, um, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. I don't care uh, as long as I have you. Don't we want to come home to someone who loves you for you and who's going to love you for you no matter what? We long for that. This is a love that transcends circumstances. How powerful then is it that the Bible describes Jesus as a bridegroom and us as his bride? He says here that he's learned the secret to contentment, and here's the secret. He says, I am in Christ. Christ is mine and I am his. And if if Paul has Christ, he is content. He will be okay, no matter the circumstances, because Christ's love transcends plenty and poverty, lack and abundance. It transcends circumstances. Paul is loved, and he's going to be loved, no matter what. Now, these aren't just words for Paul, because he had, by, at this point, been in the trenches of following Christ for decades. He, Paul had been a man of influence and authority, but Christ was more satisfying. Paul had eaten well, but it was Christ who nourished him, nourished his soul. Paul had had friends with nice houses and comfortable rooms that he had stayed in, but when Christ called him to move on, he did not miss those things. Paul has had plenty, and Christ was much better. But you know, Paul had also been shipwrecked, and Christ was his solid ground. Paul had lost friends, Christ, but Christ was his brother. Paul had been beaten, 
And Christ was the strength he needed to get up and go at it again. Paul had been robbed. In Christ, he didn't really need those things anyways. Paul had had sleepless nights, but Christ was his rest and joy. Paul had had plenty, and Christ was much better. And Paul had had want, but Christ was enough. You know, I often think, you know, what, what do, like, give me some practical outworkings of what it even means that God loves us. How does that actually shape me? But if you can understand it in that kind of a paradigm, this idea that there's a love that actually transcends our circumstances, a love that kind of uh, changes our outlook on everything that happens to us and makes it all more manageable, more bearable. Like, that is practical. That is, that is a unconditional love that really changes you. We know what that feels like, or we, at least we know that we want to know what that feels like. And that's exactly what Paul had experienced in Christ. Well, what about you? What is it the things that you would describe as your lack? Now, one that affects a lot of us is loneliness. Um, maybe you're single, want to be in a relationship. Maybe it's just, hey, I don't, I want friends and I just don't have any friends. The Apostle Paul would say, Christ transcends your loneliness. His love is much better. His love is much better. And, and if you're in Him, you have that love. He doesn't say, hey, just get over it. Just it, d- stop caring about that. No, He says, you're Christ's. Christ says, I care about that, but you also need to know that you're mine. And there's nothing that will change that. I'm right here with you, and yes, it may hurt, but in my love, I will make that hurt a little more endurable. Less is at stake because his love transcends our loneliness. You know, somewhere else where we might feel our, our lack is just being ordinary. Not particularly smart, not particularly good looking, not particularly charismatic or athletic or well spoken or connected, not particularly successful, just average to below average, ordinary. You know, most of us in this room are more ordinary than we like to think. But here's the deal Christ doesn't love you because you're special. He he, he doesn't care about that. He loves you for you, who you are right now. And and in fact, it, it has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. His love transcends your ordinariness. It's okay to be ordinary because his love transcends that, and it's better than that. When Paul says in our passage, he says, I know how to be brought low, the word for brought low there could also be translated humiliated. I know to be, how to be humiliated and be okay. Paul has experienced ordinariness, and he's okay. Because the love of Christ transcends his lack. There's this quote, well, the the Lord actually wants to use those feelings of of lack, of poverty. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis. 
In the screw tape letters, uh, one of the characters says, you know, most of the things which human beings are excited about, such as health and sickness, age and youth, war and peace, they are from the spiritual point of view mainly raw material. That is to say, in every situation you find yourself in, it's not like this is automatically good or bad. It's that this is an opportunity that God wants to actually use to mold you and to make you more like Jesus, to make you into his disciple. And do you know what our children's story Bible calls Jesus' disciples? His friends. His friends. Jesus transcends our lack, but he also transcends our abundance. Now, that, in some ways, might actually be a harder lesson to learn because, I mean, we have plenty, right? If, if, if there's a kind of a plenty poverty scale in this room, we decidedly fall on the plenty side, okay? Let's be honest. What would it mean for Christ to transcend your abundance, for you to be content in the midst of your riches, whatever those riches are, well, I, think that, I do think that this can actually be harder to grasp because when we have plenty, we, can, um, we always feel like we can buy the thing that will actually satisfy us or that will actually at least allow us to control and organize our lives in such a way that we can be happy. I think that for those of us who have plenty, the love of Christ would cause us to lean into a sort of redemptive dissatisfaction. A redemptive dissatisfaction, not to say that the good things that God has given us are bad necessarily, but to say that they're not ultimately good. They're not, they're not soul-satisfyingly good, and we can enjoy them without trying to put that soul satisfaction on top of them, because that will only crush them. And if we try to put that soul satisfaction on good things that God has given us that are not God Himself, we'll actually not be able to enjoy them to their fullest. And so God would call us to have, have this redemptive dissatisfaction where this thing actually is great, but you know, it's not everything. And it's never going to be everything. The only thing that is everything is the love of Christ for me. which can actually satisfy us, actually make us whole again, actually fill that hole in our heart. Contentment transcends circumstances because contentment is attached to the transcendent love of Christ. So contentment transcends, but it also transforms. There's this classic book written by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which we can reflect on that word picture another time. That's just wonderful. But in this book, and actually there's a quote from it in the, in the front of your bulletins today, uh, Brian turned me on to this, this illustration that he uses with contentment. He says that trying to get contentment from external circumstances is like warming a coat by a fire. And if you are sickly and cold, you can put that coat on. It doesn't matter how long it's been warmed and it will very quickly turn cold. However, if you, have a, if you are healthy and warm, you can put on a cold coat. You can put on cold clothes, and the warmth of your body will very quickly warm those clothes or that coat. 
That's how contentment works. If your heart is warm, if your heart is full, all the circumstances that you face will be transformed. The internal warmth, as we've said, comes from Christ, the love of Christ directed at you. But how does that love begin to warm your circumstances, begin to transform your circumstances? Well, two things that I think come out of this passage is that it strengthens you and it strengthens community. Strengthens you. Well, let's look at verse 13 again. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One of the most misused passages in all of Scripture. Right? You can almost imagine it like on the ceiling of a high school weight room, like right above the bench press. Like, yes, you know, can, I can do all things. I can get another 45 on. Let's go. Right? No. No. We have to read this verse in context. It's not about ability or skill. We have to, whenever we read the Bible, we want to read it in context so we can really understand what God wants us to understand, right? Instead of trying to put something on here that's not there. What is this, what is Paul saying in context? Well, Paul is in prison and he's saying, I can be content even in this. He's saying that Christ will give me strength to endure, and not just endure, but to thrive no matter the circumstances. I can be content in whatever God calls me to, whatever, wherever. If God calls me there, I can do it. I can be content. I can thrive because Christ is in me and He strengthens me. He says at the beginning of verse 10, He rejoices. In fact, Philippians is called the epistle of joy. Paul is like bubbling over with joy and he's in prison. How? The warmth of Christ warms even the walls of his cell. There's a lot of ways we might talk about how Christ strengthens us. Um, for example, God can supernaturally give you courage and strength to do things that you can't do on your own. So Jesus told his disciples that they're going to stand before emperors and rulers and, and don't even worry about what you need to say. When you get up there, the Holy Spirit will strengthen you and give you the courage and the words to say, and I'll be with you. Paul says elsewhere, he says, in my weakness, Christ is strong. When Paul experiences his frailty and his weakness, that's when Christ meets him in that moment. So there are specific instances and moments when Christ can strengthen you, but I think those are probably actually the exception, not the rule. And this is how I've been kind of been thinking about how Christ strengthens us. Let's say there's a boy who grows up in a big family, and his parents, although they're pillars of the community, they're not too busy for him, and they spend time with him, and they know him. He also has a lot of siblings, and his siblings love to be with him. When he's there, they're happy. They love it. He's their best friend. And it's not just his nuclear family. He has cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And they all notice him and they think he's really great and they want to be with him. He, they know he brings something to the table. They know that he's an integral part of their family and he knows it too. But he's also in middle school. And as you all know, middle school is rough. Middle school can be kind of cruel at times. And this guy, he's not, he's not particularly smart. He's not particularly cool. He's not particularly athletic. And so middle school's pretty rough. He gets made fun of a lot. He's not one of the cool kids. Is he going to be okay? 
Is that kid going to be okay? Is he going to make it through? Yeah, he is. Why? Why? Because he's loved and valued by so many people. He knows who he is. He has the security and warmth of his family that will carry him through even these difficult times. And they may not, he may not know exactly how it's affecting him, but it is affecting him. It is shaping his experience of middle school and his experience of himself. It's the same with us and God's love. Where we have a father whose love doesn't change. We have a brother who's for us and values us and loves us, who knows who we are and loves us and accepts us and gives us a place and security with him in the family, the family of God. It strengthens us. It strengthens us. It's almost like the backbone of Paul's life is the love of Christ. And it just, it's not necessarily these moments. It's just who I am and how I experience the world is strengthened by this love, this love that transcends my circumstances. It shapes everything about his world. It's an abounding love that transforms. Well, it also transforms community. Content people make better friends. Content people make better co-workers, better parents, better spouses. And we can see this on display with how Paul treats the Philippians. He, he says he rejoices greatly in their gift. That's what he tells them. Um, but it's not because he needed it. He rejoiced greatly because it reminded him of how good friends that they were and how much they cared about him and loved him. And he just loved that. Look at, verse, look at these verses. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have arrived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Gifts in that time were signifiers of friendship. And he says, listen, the gift, take it or leave it, I'm, I'm going to be fine no matter what. But man, y'all love me. Y'all care about me. And that means the world to me, because I care about you too. Imagine if you can a community where everyone is content. Not lazy or apathetic, that's a different thing, but content. Their hearts are full. What would relationships in that town look like? Well, it would look like friendship without networking. Now, nothing against networking, but, but that feeling of like, I have to get to know this person so that they can get me into the social circle or get me to meet this person so that person can hire me so that I can get this better job. Like that feeling of a desperate neediness of like, I need this so that I can be okay and I can, get, I can climb the ladder, social ladder, whatever it is. That would be gone. People want to know, would want to know you, not what you can get for them. Imagine that. You're a friend. They have time for you. There's no need to rush out the door. We just have time. And in fact, I think um, one, uh, one of the evidences of a more content community would be a less busy community. You know, there might be no better indication than that we're trying to hang clothes on a cold body than the frantic pace of our life. Yeah, I know there, like, there are busy seasons, I get that, that's, that's a real thing, but I think most of us are far beyond that excuse. And, and it matters, it shapes us. I, I, a while ago there was a video 
on YouTube of this, it was this police boat, I think it was Italian, but an Italian police boat that was bearing down on this dock. And the, the speed at which the police boat was going was shocking, just straight into this dock. And then, of course, at the last minute, minute he kicks it to the side, lands it perfectly against the dock, and like, and this huge wall of water just splashes on like everybody that was on the dock, right? And it's an amazing video, but I'm also glad I wasn't there because I would have gotten soaked. And I think our lives are a lot like that. We have this frantic breakneck speed. And from the outside, it looks like, man, how did you park that boat? That was insane. Like doing all that and just landing it perfectly there at night, it's amazing. But I wouldn't want to be there as your kids are all the time. And I feel like this wave of anxiety and expectation and unmet longing just like crashes on our children or on our neighbors or our friends. It's not good. It's not good. A content community is one where parents would have enough downtime to get to know their children. Not just know what they do, but to really know them as people. The same could be true of the na- our neighbors, our church, or our community group. To really get to know people and have time enough for them. A community that would be transform- that's transformed by contentment would be so human. It would be so loving. It would be so strong. You know, as the love of Christ trans- transforms our hearts. He would have us move in that direction. A community transformed by contentment that's human, that's loving, that's strong. Let me close with this. Do you remember those, I think it must have been in college, those, when I was in college, those Corona commercials? from back in the day, and you have kind of, you're looking from behind out at the ocean, and there's two beach chairs, and there's, there, you just see two arms, and they each have a little corona with a, just a fresh cut lime, and they chink them together, and you, you know what was remarkable about those commercials? There was no words spoken. Do y'all remember that? Just like, comp- the only sound was the waves lapping on the shore. No words at all. How, why? why? Why didn't they need words? Why do they not need words? Well, the Im- those images of this restful, peaceful paradise, they immediately awaken in us like this deep longing for, for peace and contentment. We don't need to be convinced. We want it. And we all know that corona, corona is not going to get us there, okay? But also neither is your square footage. Neither is your well-behaved children. Neither is your promotion. Neither is your vacation. It's not going to get us there. The Bible says that Jesus himself is going to take us to the place that we long to go. You really can have it all. You really can have it all. That is the message of the gospel. You can have it all, but it's not found in these circumstances or these things or these experiences. It is found in Christ himself, and the bridegroom is coming back for the bride. 
Jesus, he died for us. He, he, he rose for us. He ascended into heaven for us. And he's coming back for us. And when he does, he's going to transform the world by his love. And he's going to fill us. He's going to fill us to the top. He's going to fill us to abounding, fill us to abundance. He's going to, we're going to be fully at rest, at peace, content. You know, these things, these corona, other things, they can't deliver on their, on their promises. But Jesus can. He can. And He will. He will. If He can conquer death, if He can conquer sin, He can satisfy your soul. And He wants to because He loves you. Now that is a love story. A big love story. Big enough for all your hopes and longings and dreams. And it's a true story about how our Father loves His children. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, satisfy us in your love. Lord, we need you. We need you to fill us and make us whole again. Lord, let us not be content with the things here that, that promise satisfaction, but Lord, let us look to that day and point our whole lives toward that day when all, all of our needs will be met, all of our desires will be satisfied when we are with you when the bridegroom comes home for the bride. Lord, we are ready. We're longing for that day. Change us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.